0: Hey, pals, welcome to The Culture Journalist. I'm Andrea Dominic. And
1: I'm Emily Friedlander.
0: So we want to kick things off today with a quote from the great Marxist philosopher Antonio Gramsci.
1: The crisis consists precisely in the fact that the old is dying and the new cannot be born. In this interregnum, a great variety of morbid symptoms appear.
0: Gramsci was describing the political situation in Italy and Europe about a year into the Great Depression. But his words also sum up the subject of political scientist and friend of the pod Kevin Munger's new book, which is Boomers, and their unceasing grip on American politics and culture, and why it's so difficult for them to understand what us young people are going through right now.
1: His book, Generation Gap, Why the Baby Boomers Still Dominate American Politics and Culture, explores the confluence of factors that led the baby boomers to become the richest, the most powerful, and most populous elder generation in American history, and how the concentration of so much power at the top of the age pyramid is shaping or perhaps stunting, the ability of millennials and Gen Z to come into their own as a political power base.
0: Borrowing a metaphor from the nautical world, he calls this phenomenon boomer ballast, saying, our ship of state has more ballast, or weight, than ever before, rendering us unusually stable or slow to adapt. Think the fact that members of the boomer generation and the silent generation still hold more seats in Congress than any other age group. And how rare it is to see real material progress when it comes to the problems that impact young people the most. Climate collapse, student loan debt, and decades of stagnating wages.
1: Today, we're diving deep into the boomer generation. How their lived experience has shaped their view of the world and the long legacy of the cultural and intellectual currents they gave rise to. For example, the hippie movement of the 60s and 70s segwaying into the Randian individualism of the 80s.
2: So they turn self-righteous and they want to make things hard on younger people. They tell them abstain from sex, say no to drugs. As for the rock and roll, they sold that for television commercials a long time ago.
1: We'll be exploring why our own experiences and priorities are so different from theirs and how our inability to achieve our own political aims in the face of so much entrenched institutional power and the internet is pushing millennial and Gen Z political behavior into strange and surprising new shapes. To do that,
0: we enlisted the brains of two of our favorite thinkers on all things related to generational political self-expression. Kevin himself, an assistant professor of political science and social data analytics at Penn State University, and Joshua Citarella, an artist who studies political subcultures online. Josh is also the founder of Do Not Research, a Discord community publication and arts institution focus on documenting aesthetic culture and mimetic influence on the internet.
1: Did you know that the boomer generation once appeared as the person of the year on the cover of a certain high-profile American magazine simply by virtue of being born?
0: Ever wonder why some young people on the internet seem to be politically self-identifying in ways that completely explode the left-right Democratic-Republican
1: binary? Want to hear the story behind how to plant a meme? Josh's experiment using capitalist realism memes to try to covertly steer radical meme accounts toward more productive ends?
0: Well, buckle up, because we've got a wild show for y'all. And just a heads up, you're listening to the free version of The Culture Journalist. For the full version of this episode and others, plus essays, monthly culture recommendations, and more, sign up for a paid subscription, just five bucks a month, over at our Substack. And now, on to the show.
3: I belong to the blank generation, and I can take it or leave it
1: time. Well, I belong to the generation, but I can take it or leave it time. Josh Cinderella and Kevin Munger, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thanks for having us. Yeah, looking forward to it.
1: So, Kevin, you have this new book out, and I know that you originally wanted to call it Boomer Ballast. What is Boomer Ballast?
2: All right, so the idea is that the country is made up of people and the specific demographic weight of the Boomer generation um, has kind of shifted the focus of American culture and politics throughout the entire post-war era. And now this weight to the very top of the age pyramid, and that's really restraining forward progress, perhaps more than otherwise be natural.
1: And so what are the areas where this phenomenon shows up in our society? Do you mean economics, politics, everything?
2: Right. So the demographic fact is simply because people came back from World War II and had a bunch of babies, right? And the way that that fact is filtered throughout different institutions varies by how flexible or inflexible institutions are, right? So certainly the boomers experienced a lot of success economically early on. And then they also were there when a lot of the major institutions of post-war America society, the things we take for granted today were either being started or when they were flourishing. And so, for example, at the top of all these major professions, like academia, journalism, law, doctors, and then especially politicians, we have those initial advantages of the baby boomers because of good economic fortune being compounded by the relatively inflexible institutions that have basically been shaped by this one specific generation.
3: I think the meme would go something like the boomer generation and its consequences have been a disaster for the human race. Would that be accurate? That's probably correct.
1: Well, Kevin, you had a tweet today that said, "Boomer ballast explains much of our contemporary political and cultural malaise." Can you riff on this thought a little bit?
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, certainly, there's a the sense that uh, we're sort of stuck in a period of nostalgia, or we're stuck in the past. And I think that you know, a lot of people point to you know, capitalist realism, right? wonder why <laughs> that to some extent downstream of the, the boomer realism and that the specific normalcy that was constructed that people like us, millennials in America, white one especially, were kind of raised expecting this to be how the world existed, but that was just specific to the boomer experience. And so now we're in this weird disjuncture between the received normalcy and the increasing weirdness uh, accelerated by the internet.
3: Yeah, I think there are certain norms of like hard work is rewarded and that you get a stable job and there's a level of security and dependability and you can chart a normal life in a flourishing society. And all of those kind of boomer norms are now really pulled into question because I think we're just seeing them break down uh, every day in your newsfeed, you know, where people will work their entire lives in precarious underpaid jobs. And then some fourteen-year-old on some new coin that just dropped is all of a sudden a millionaire overnight, and the value of hard work and planning your life and everything is really being called into question in a very serious way. So, yeah, people who did not benefit from that period of pretty much unprecedented historical growth—a growing pie—I'm I'm kind of paraphrasing what what you write in the intro of the the book, Kevin, but. Yeah, that instills a sense of values. And really, I think it, it comes down to like the the value of work and, and what is a an appropriate reward for your labor. And it seems now that the, the Gen Z kids, there's just there's really not the same level of opportunity at all.
1: So sort of this like awkwardness, like I know as a millennial where, you know, I was raised in New York City, parents like vaguely in the boomer yuppie demographic. They put a lot of pressure on me growing up to get into the best schools and I had to take like tests to get into different magnet schools and, and all that. And then you finally go to college and then you graduate and then there's a recession and there's no jobs anyway. Is it sort of like a continuation of that?
2: Uh, yeah. I mean, except that that's just sort of the default, right? Because definitely the experience of this specific subgeneration of millennials to which we belong was kind of the most disappointed in terms of they had expectations coming in that the world was like it used to be, and then it was revealed that it was no longer like that. Whereas I think you're saying like Gen Z kids are under no illusions that the world
3: will reward them for hard work. And
2: so there's not disappointment as much as there is kind of
3: just nihilism. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're big questions. My sense is that a lot of the, I mean, the, the generation of artists that I kind of came up along. Maybe it's it's not a full generation. It's like a a particular slice of early adopters of social media, you know, right time, right place. But there was a fanatical rhetoric around this, like what tech startups were going to do. And there was this real optimism. I'm thinking of like 2011 to 12 and and 13 before the backlash. And I, I think implicitly the hope of those things was that those platforms and those technologies were going to restore the productivity that was available to the post-World War II generation. And it just seems to have really catastrophically failed. So now we're bookended by a few various economic crises where all of those myths have now become discredited and the opportunities seem evacuated. And yeah, there's a pervasive sense of, of nihilism. I think I called it, uh, this is an article years ago, but A joyous nihilism is, I think, a a good qualitative description of a lot of the Zoomer memes that you see floating around. Yeah. I mean, that's the only only option they have, it seems.
2: There might be other options in the future. And that's why the boomer perspective is a little bit helpful in terms of optimism, is that like, it's particularly bad right now, but it might be different in 10, 20 years.
3: Yeah, that's what I see happening among, well, (laughs) unfortunately not on the, the left, but there are pretty significant formations of young Gen Z conservative movements, media organizations. It's kind of unclear what to call them at the moment, but at the tail end of neoliberalism, because I think we are now transitioning into something else, the role of the state is ripe for conversation and debate and introducing the the hand of regulators and, and the state back into what has otherwise been a process of privatization and deregulation. Those things are are really coming up on the horizon. And and you can hear it explicitly in their rhetoric where in older, like definitely a boomer generation, but also in the, the rhetoric of Xers and even some of the millennial stuff around like, I'm thinking of like a, a tea party era or something like that going back. There's not the same level of individualism and skepticism towards taxation and, and all of these things. There's an emergent critique that in an age of runaway inequality, you really do have to have some type of management of the economy, or you just get, you know, rampant, crazy, unfettered, uh, capitalism and, and it creates a life for Gen Z kids, which is, you know, very we're dying of liberty at the moment. There's there's kind of too much there's too much freedom and there's too many markets. And maybe what we need is some more comprehensive planning and the state to be more involved in the distribution of resources and the economy and, and whatever.
1: That's super interesting. I wanna get into that later. I just wanna back up for a second before we do that though. I'm curious how did the boober generation end up seizing such broad and unyielding power in the first place? And Like, what historical factors have converged to create this situation?
2: Right. In a lot of social science, we want to be able to point to a single cause and figure out what the effects are. But I I do think that the situation here is that there is an effect, which is the boomers are dominant. And there's a lot of different causes that are not necessarily connected. They're somewhat random, right? So obviously, there's a lot of boomers. They experienced a lot of economic success. And it wasn't even really something they did, right? So one of my favorite facts i learned doing research in the book is that the baby boomer generation won Time Magazine's Person of the Year Award in 1967 just for being born. They were called the inheritors at the time. And it was so obvious to everyone this was like a new era of prosperity and possibility for the baby boomers. They got a participation trophy. Yeah, right. So they were born into the time article system like unprecedented economic opportunity right and that was real and i I do think that this was cemented by the control of the major institutions and then increasingly we're just seeing the control of literal housing real
3: estate in in the major cities is a is a massive yeah reason that they are not going away part of what i do on the content stream is that we have a syllabus and there's a, a reading group that is loosely organized around it and uh, maybe this is six months ago now or something, but we read this book by Fred Turner called from counterculture to Cyberculture," And I feel like there's a few contributing factors here where there was a type of freedom that the hippie counterculture really valued that was maybe at the time attached to left-wing progressive ideas, but also had at its core, like this economic kernel of a a kind of libertarian individualism. You see this in the early pioneers of Silicon Valley. And a lot of those people were, you know, linked to the, the counterculture of the 68 and then became, you know, Randian individualists by the 90s. But I mean, I'm almost, I'm pretty sympathetic to it given the backdrop of growing up during the Vietnam War and a society that has flourishing free markets and One can understand how those political subjectivities were shaped, but now we're, you know, 40 years down the road of kind of (laughs) over implementing these exaggerated hyperbolic policies of deregulation and individualism. And yeah, that is coming into question in a very vivid way.
2: The California ideology you're describing. I actually get kind of pissed off about this because California at the time was just literally a paradise, right? Like it is the best climate in the world and these people were just able to buy houses there and live there, the material conditions for experimenting with all these interesting, fun ideas and drugs were uniquely good for this generation. And it's kind of hard for them to appreciate that fact, just how lucky they were, which makes the kind of intergenerational discourse and understanding quite difficult. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: I guess I'm wondering, like, how does our experience of our 20s and 30s, like, early to mid-adulthood, differ from that of the boomer generation? Are there challenges that we face economically that boomers never had to deal with?
2: Yeah, I mean, the tricky thing is to say, on this point of lack of understanding, is that they all did it right in their understanding of the world, right? Like, they played by the rules, they worked hard, they, as a result, were able to achieve the American dream of being more successful than their parents, buying a house early. So it's really difficult for them to understand that that's no longer possible right and so you know i think your question we sort of all know the answer here that real estate is a big problem and, and even student loan debt is a novel problem facing our generation that was not an the issue then like the price and necessity of getting a college degree are radically different than they were for boomers
3: yeah there's uh there's some wonderful memes floating around of like uh They plot the cost of a television from the 1960s up until the 2020s. And it decreases by like, I don't know, something outrageous, like 95%. It's unbelievably affordable. And this is stuff that circulates in kind of libertarian and cap circles of deranged teenagers. But, you know, you contrast that against the cost of housing and education. I think in the 1960s in New York City, you were paying something like an average of 10% of your monthly income towards housing. And now it's like 50%. So yeah, it, the problem is running away in the other direction. So, uh, the commodities, entertainment, things like that have gotten much more affordable, you can get a TV for much less than you could before, but all of the really necessary goods, the things that you can't do without like housing and healthcare, those have gotten astronomically expensive.
1: I don't know if this came up in either of your research, but I'm also wondering if the state of employment was different. It just seems like in personal experience, like people don't like stay at jobs for decades anymore to the same extent, I'm sure some people do. Like my mother worked, like she had like one job and she kept it for like two decades and then she left of her own accord. Everybody around me, and this is of course anecdotal, seems to just be switching jobs like every six months to three years is there anything that came up in your research around that
2: yeah i actually i think this is a little bit overblown there's a economist self-styled millennial myth debunker and looking at the like large-scale economic data it doesn't seem that millennials actually are job hopping anymore than previous generations were i definitely agree with your like experience of the world. But at the macro level, that's not the case. And I think part of this also has to do with the fact that the boomers are a relatively homogenous generation. Like by some measures, they're the whitest generation in history because immigration was at an all-time low in American history when they were children, right? The percentage of foreign-born people in the country hit its lowest in the 50s. And the country really has become a lot more diverse during their lifetime. And so I'm saying this to say that our Experience is maybe even less representative than the experience of most people in our age group than this would have been the case for, for the boomers where it was a much more homogenous and economically equal experience.
1: That makes sense. And I know you make a point kind of early in the book that the phenomenon of boomer ballast does not cohere in the same way when you're talking about the black community or other communities.
2: Yeah, pushing on this makes it clear the specific policy choices that we made as a country were like the GI bill was disproportionately taken advantage of by white veterans. And that was a big part of kickstarting the path to the middle class, which defined the white boomer experience. And then like racist redlining practices, largely excluded black Americans from the path of accumulating wealth in housing. Right. And then if you look at the lifespan, even if there was a bit of a baby boom among black Americans, just in terms of the birth rate going up, there has been differential life expectancy over time. And so now if you're looking at someone who's 65 or 70, the chance that they're white is like 90%. And if you're looking at someone who's 15, the chance that they're white is 55%, which is a really actually striking difference.
3: 2008 also, like the, the people who are targeted for the worst, most predatory loans, and then the destruction of wealth when people are forced out of their homes is it just even further polarizes it along the racialized uh, distribution of wealth. There's so many crises in a row that erode that narrative of the, the boomer generation and that era of prosperity.
0: So, just circling back a little bit towards what we were talking about, boomers and their attitudes toward work and productivity, how would you describe the boomer generation's impact on how we think about and our attitudes towards work and productivity, especially when so many of us were raised by boomers and had that kind of imbued in us?
2: Uh, yeah. I mean, they have been part of a long strand of American. Culture, I read a book by Margaret Mead, which is distinguishing like capitalist and, and like American culture from even European culture on this, which is that America doesn't have anything else. We have no unifying myths. We have only our belief in progress and our own self-efficacy, right? And I guess part of the problem is that this actually just played out super well for the boomers, right? That they were uniquely able to do this, to live up to the standards of What America is, is progress. And, you know, what we're asking them is to discount their lived experience and say, actually, the world is different now. Here's some stats, right? I think that's a very challenging problem for
3: millennials who are trying to bridge this divide. Yeah, maybe just as an anecdotal thing, because I I gave some thoughts on this earlier, but I think part of the thing that makes me very sympathetic to it is that I just, I, I know my mom, like her own lived experience. She came from a really humble background of a single mother, very working class, and she was the first woman, first person in her family to go to college, and then had a a wonderful career. And now she's uh, somewhat retired, and they have a a really charmed life and a home. And seeing that level of upward mobility in her lifetime is, I mean, I think it's important to like, as you know, people who have left-wing politics, it's important to acknowledge that really wonderful things did happen in that period of society. But yeah, we are now faced with the shrinking pie and the slices are getting smaller, which is just, it's being squeezed from all directions. And yeah, I I constantly go back to like the example of the 15 year old who um, becomes a, a crypto millionaire overnight is like the most hyperbolized example of this. But I think I was probably in middle school or something like that. I was too young to be able to drive. I didn't yet have my learner's permit. But I had a summer job that then became like a fall and into a a winter job. I think I was working for like literally five dollars an hour. Like it was nothing totally illegal. But my parents really valued like, oh, he's got to learn the importance of hard work. You know, he has to like put in a a good day of work so that he'll be a good, productive citizen later in life. And yeah, that is like now feels really, really silly.
2: The contrast with the crypto 15 year old millionaire, this is what margaret mead describes as the failure mode of the american culture which is that we are also attracted to con men and figuring out how to cheat the system and so she's really concerned that if this became widespread the belief that in fact hard work is not the way to get ahead but rather we should be figuring out how to how to cheat that is something that actually could pose a big problem for the american psyche and i think that's exactly where we're at now and i think even she even said that like she's not worried about fascism as kind of a Hitler in the U.S. She's worried about fascism in the kind of like a gang leader, someone who is going to say to his supporters, look, we have figured out how to cheat everybody else. And I think this actually describes like Trumpism quite well.
1: What also came to mind to me, which I like wrote about recently, was just like, how it seems like every like hot Netflix show is about a scammer and it's a formula that just works so, so well as entertainment because maybe people like can't even conceive of success outside of the kind of scam narrative.
3: Well, we hate them, but we also, we also like them because in a way with a society that is so unequal and corrupt, they're kind of Robin Hood characters. Like I think there's a general acknowledgement that if the whole system is is rotten from the core, then there's not like an ethical or correct way to engage with it. So on some level we empathize with these people because yeah, we're trapped in the same corrupt system and, and somebody can get ahead. I mean, this is speaking from a position of real defeat <laughs> and deflation to, to even empathize with these, these con men characters. But I think it kind of hits people on both levels where you're like, you're disapproving of it, but you also realize that the existing hierarchy is just so stratified that it cannot be legitimate. And yeah, if somebody finds a way to get ahead, it kind of reveals the illegitimacy in a way. It's a pretty sick <laughs> position to be in. Um, I do think maybe it's important to throw in here at, at some points that the shrinking pie, the growing illegitimacy of uh, runaway inequality, I think there are other societies that have dealt with this generally better. And we're talking about a, a really specific American perspective, obviously, in this case. But some of the things that are coming up on the edges of the Overton window of structures of cooperative ownership, or if you work at a company, then you get a certain percentage of the shares. Those things are pretty effective, maybe to use Kevin's language, ballast against the the rampant inequality that we have now. So I guess the the great hope of this is that something else can be moved into the center of the Overton window and become a scalable appealing proposal to a lot of people that would uh, resolve some of these worries rather than having to find a a demagogue dictator sort that would like cheat the system in your favor, right? Everybody agrees that the system is uh, not working, that somebody somewhere is cheating at it. But if you can find something that's a little bit more fair, maybe that becomes a preferable alternative.
2: Yeah, that's great. And I think, yeah, we need optimism at this point, like techno pessimism is, is simply ceding more power to the people who already have too much. Uh, I think in the short term, the issue with Trumpism in particular is boomers, a psychological crisis as they age, right? So tied into the American ideal of progress is the idea that we actually just don't care for elderly people at all. Mm-hmm. Right. Other, other cultures, societies do really emphasize like at least respect or try to integrate them. But the baby boomers now are becoming unable to contribute economically. And we also have far more fragmented families, no extended families, and they're going to live for another 10 years, 20 years, basically existing on a diet of information terrorism, media terrorism. And I think that the only option for them is this kind of nihilistic reaction. Someone who can explain why the world is wrong and why our lives are really bad, but it is a kind of unique problem that we have so many people over 80 who have so much economic power.
1: Yeah. Do you mean that there's an anxiety over what it means to be elderly right now or kind of not wanting to let go of their power or wanting to continue to live in the way that they lived when they were younger?
2: Right. Like we, we definitely fetishize youth as part of our, our cultural mode and there's no real path forward into living a fulfilling life
1: i'm just thinking on a cultural level of like you know like the villages in Florida. like have you seen that really good documentary yes yeah and this sort of vibe of like a retirement community like this becomes almost this opportunity to live your 20s and 30s again and like date and party and There was a really interesting article in Eater that I love about how like the, in Florida, the early bird special has been retired because boomers want to go to like wine bars, natural food restaurants, et cetera. Like the culture of even that kind of world is changing in an interesting way.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that's sort of better than the alternative. I think that they should all log off the internet and try to go on walks and, and hang out with people. The problem really is that those are really the the most, the the richest ones, but a lot of them are, for example, still living in crumbling, rust-belt small towns with no possibility of leaving. They can't actually leave their house because they're locked into owning the house and like there's not really any option. They have very few social institutions of the type that used to exist, churches, fraternal organizations, and so they're just sitting at home consuming media and feeling alienated, which is not a good cluster of people for like moving on to the next thing in American democracy or arranging a new like economic model.
1: To shift gears a little bit, what is the impact of the boomer ballast phenomenon on the politics of millennials and Gen Z? In what ways are the older and younger generations politically at odds? And what are the consequences of that disjunct, especially in terms of younger people being able to mobilize politically.
2: Yeah, I think it's going to be great because I think that Josh and I have different perspectives on this that will be very complementary. So I would say institutionally, the boomers will control both of the two parties and that that is a real force multiplier compared to other Western democracies, right? So in most of Europe and a lot of Latin America, they have a parliamentary system where you can have a third, fourth, fifth parties emerging. And we're seeing youth focused parties, mostly green parties, where that allows these countries to start the process of getting in people actually involved in electoral politics, developing a cadre of activists and uh, potential political candidates, fundraisers, setting up like actual organizational capacity. Um, and then if you get a few seats in Congress or the parliament, then that, that allows you to further develop. And so we're seeing that kind of standard virtuous cycle of generational replacement in elected office and in the U S that's just so clearly not happening. And it is the most obvious in the democratic party where there has been for a few cycles now, an obvious divide between the young and the old and the old have thus far been able to, to win it. And so I think that produces large scale, like alienation from the process and disaffection among young people, which then leads to a proliferation of alternative ideas.
3: Yeah, I guess I would say I'm, I'm sympathetic to that. I think when we describe the boomer generation, what is foremost in my mind is that we're talking about the people who kind of sat by and just let neoliberalism happen and didn't complain about it because it benefited them and it, it kind of hurt everybody else who came after. I would say though that I'm pretty skeptical about the possibilities of Green Party politics because I think mostly what that has in a few important instances turned into is that they are basically inextricably linked to a liberal majority that wants to implement further neoliberal austerity. So these Green Parties seem to end up being all the time in a parliamentary coalition with the Liberal Austerity Party. And my feeling is that, and and I think what many of the Zoomers that I talk to share, is that there really needs to be, if the primary problem is that we've shifted way too far down the spectrum to privatization, it has to be a class struggle first, and then we can deal with the the carbon problem. But yeah, I, th- I think we do need some pretty big scale solutions in terms of energy and the state's involvement and yeah, these minority parties are, I would be very happy to see if it happened, but I'm skeptical about the possibilities of those. Uh, and certainly once you try and map this onto the US, it becomes a whole, a whole nightmare.
2: I guess the, the case for optimism is simply the fact that these people believe it's possible to work with the system and are developing organizational capacity, which then could be used in other ways. But certainly, yes, the the left needs to start doing this as well.
1: (laughs) Is, Is there a sense of futility on the part of young people that kind of the future that they would want to live in is just not something that can be born right now? I think you have a quote or a line in your book about that,
2: Kevin. Sure. Yes, I did. I did include the famous Gramsci quote, it's too good not to. I think the... The long-term case is that the future's not going to get born tomorrow, but something will happen when the boomer's grip on power eventually fades. And then it's going to be whichever groups are the best organized and best able to step in to the power vacuum this creates, that will determine what the future is.
3: Yeah, it's tough. It's tough because, you know, the Gen Z kids are obviously still very young. And the movements that we're talking about that are emerging on that front are... You know if we're trying to speculate out like a a 15 to 20 year timeline we're talking about movements that are like four years old or, or something like that so it's there's a lot to a lot to crunch i wonder though i feel like sometimes when we have these conversations we run the risk of kind of deferring the problems that like well you know things are really bad right now but the kids are more active than ever you know and i feel like that's been a pervasive meme in in political discourse for a long time like you know we're up against seemingly insurmountable obstacles but the kids today are, are more radical and they're very motivated to get it done and what that seems to look like is just <laughs> 40 years of sliding wages and uh, productivity becoming divergent. I try to extrapolate for the worst case scenarios to to cover the full spectrum but if it's any indication of what is now like politically formed and interfacing with elected officials in uh, uh, government, the people who seem to be most well positioned are people who are of a paleoconservative stripe of politics, which is, you know, a, a quite radical recalibration from what we had before. And it opens up to some pretty scary scenarios.
1: Can you briefly define what that worldview looks like, Jasor? listeners understand?
3: Yeah, well, it's a popular topic in the last few years and the last few weeks, uh, especially. But I guess broadly, I would describe paleoconservatism as it's also it's very heterodox, which is is part of the problems of or the origin of the movement that there are certain antagonisms in it. But I would describe the emergent Gen Z conservative politics as being economically protectionist, interested in creating Uh, economic opportunity for citizens, a strong sense of national identity, pretty explicitly racist. They're skeptical of the boomers on grounds of free markets because they think that what, you know, in the Marxist uh, sense we would call proletarianization, they see that their declining economic prospects as being the result of bad decisions that the generations had made before. Uh, That being said, they have There's some sense, for example, a National Health Service, like the the bare-bones social democracy benefits that we would see in other advanced nations outside of the U.S., they are favorable towards those things, but would always link them to a national identity and implicitly a racial identity. But they do have a pretty strict idea of essential core capitalist ideology of like private ownership and wage labor and all of the things that go into the early formations of like a Thatcherite neoliberalism where if you were to eviscerate the welfare state, then you would cause family units to become more dependent on each other. Like if the government isn't going to provide the ambulance that brings you to the doctor when you're sick, then you need to rely on your family. And so in that that initial early phase of the 80s, trying to do austerity was a way of reinforcing social values. Obviously, a lot of that has changed now, but the appeal of this message to conservative leaning Gen Z people is really, really strong because they feel the economic squeeze and they have all those social values that they're trying to live out, but they just they don't have the material basis upon which to, to build any of those intergenerational or, or family solidarities.
1: Could you talk a little bit more about how you see this economic squeeze, these political forces we're talking about in the context of Boomer ballast? how do you see it playing out in these young people's lives on the individual level? Like, that's a pretty far out political view. Uh, How does everything we're talking about impact young people's sense of their own agency and their feelings about the future?
3: Yeah, well, I I would just say that I'm not so sure that it's that politically far out. I mean, relative to the last few years, but the rhetoric that came from the 2016 campaign of Trump was, that was very appealing to a lot of these kids. Well, I'll, I'll just speak from my own experience. I've been interviewing in the last few years, a number of Gen Z kids who got into politics through largely memes and other online internet content like YouTubers and podcasts and things like this. And so I'm just watching what messages they are receptive to and how they make life decisions. I've been doing this since 2016, I guess. So in that time, I've watched people go from, you know, roughly when I started this work, age 12 to 17, and now I would say they're probably 18 to 24. Uh, A lot of those people have gone to college. A lot of those people have joined the military. They have uh, had families. They've gotten different jobs. They've gone on to make you know, life-shaping decisions based on some of the early political influences that they encountered in these online spaces. And I think there's ways in which the conservative appeal kind of it obfuscates the material reality that is in practice very important for maintaining stability in that you can, you know, literally have two incomes invested in a mortgage and that makes it much more sustainable. And then you can accumulate wealth and, and things like that. And so I see them talk about decisions that they've made that are cloaked in the rhetoric of certain social values, but are... In my analysis, at the root, really just protecting the possibilities to accumulate wealth. Having children is so unbelievably expensive. You really do need to have, you know, two parents and, and two incomes and a, a dependable low overhead be able to plan in the future. And the precarity of working life now makes that pretty much you know, impossible unless you have a few things that are, are really set up for the long term. I mean, that being said, uh, this if you're talking about a, a 24-year-old who has a, a, a child, that's uh, you know also not unusual for a few decades back, but it would be maybe early to say that those are dependable life decisions for the long term, because all of this is a very new world with very new values and media ecosystems, et cetera.
2: Yeah, I think that's, so many of them, their, their lives have been so rationalized, optimized. There's no space. There's no capacity for them to like, think about what they want in the world and like then experiment and develop themselves as a person are they're already so controlled and that I think you're right that the, the conservative appeal is something like, well, if at least we had a, a two parent household that would create some little space that we could perhaps defend from neoliberal capitalism and the rationalizing tendencies. And so I think that the push for like vitalism and and like personal developments among these online conservatives stems from a sense that absent like a particularly powerful will and maybe some like really strong, tight family community bonds, there's no possibility of creating a space outside of capitalism from which to do anything.
3: Yeah, it's funny because what we're kind of inarticulately describing is that Uh, conservative social networks have built in mutual aid systems, which is a, a kind of funny analogy to map to the other side. But yeah, that's exactly it, that there's these little pockets that are protected from the market pushing its way in and polarizing the resources and yeah people coming to assist one another and you know your your neighbor will look after your kids when you have to go to work and then you can give them the favor back and there's not an exchange of money and there's not all the the competition of markets that just like you know immediately polarizes those resources and and drains it upwards so yeah people find funny ways to 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 defend those things that are i think essentially economic in their core
1: i'm thinking about for our last episode we had on The writer James Pogue, who wrote this piece about the new right for Vanity Fair, I also think about this sometimes when I've read like Ross Duthett from the New York Times, but this idea of, you know, one direction of the Republican Party becoming this kind of like social conservatism mixed with economic populism. Is that feel a piece with what you're talking about?
2: Yeah, that's definitely it. Yeah. Perhaps useful comparison is this book by Patrick Deneen, a conservative, Catholic, kind of a, a weirdo. But basically, I read the book. It's blurred by Obama. It's like a very big book among, I guess, boomer intellectuals, conservative liberals like Obama. And so the, the, the key move for him is to describe all the things that I think leftists would analyze as being resultant from capitalism, undoing social structures in order to further rationalize all of human life towards the goal of economic productivity, and commodity circulation as being the product of liberalism. And I think that it is easier for an 18 year old to see the world and see how, how liberalism, progressivism, how social change has taken place over the past decade. It's very hard to see things like tax policy and and all of the like actual large scale policies that affect the material conditions. And so if you're just looking at the world from a relatively naive lens, it does seem that yes, things are bad now. Yes, my life is controlled and optimized. And yes, liberalism shaking up all of the inherited social structures has been a major force that I can observe in my life. And so, not surprised that people are making a causal connection.
0: So, that kind of makes a good segue into the next question for Josh, which is tell us about your how to plant a meme project and what was your hypothesis going into it?
3: Oh goodness! This has been—it's <laughs> been an eventful last few weeks on on the internet. Uh, the <laughs> response has been interesting. You may have seen a, a abundance of memes on this topic. Uh, okay, so I I published an essay. I guess it's maybe a month back or something like that now. Uh, the title of which is how to plant a meme and this is just to give the full timeline here this is a transcript of a podcast i did in 2019 or 2020 and it was recapping a project that had been over for eight months before that but i was very interested to see if you could wield a positive influence through propagating memes right this was the question at the time where so many young people were being influenced by youtube content political content memes uh can the left meme have been the topic of numerous panel discussions and essays articles everything so artists you know we can theorize all we want but we have to try things in practice so in that essay i describe an 18 month-long project where I tried to positively influence through a variety of references, gradations over time, and move kids from a really kind of eco-nihilism into what I thought was a more productive, rehabilitative sort of politics, and introduce them to Mark Fisher over over a very large period of months, because that's quite a quite a leap from where we were before. The project really takes off when eight months after finishing it i tell the whole story on a podcast and then my community do not research which is primarily based out of the discord they loved the idea and they made hundreds upon hundreds of capitalist realism memes which have been circulating on the internet ever since and so this thing keeps getting rediscovered maybe like once a year and people seem very very into it i think it was a productive project in terms of a targeted intervention. I don't want to oversell the scale of this because, you know, we may be talking about influencing a few thousand people. We're not talking about things in the multi-millions, but certainly now there are content creators who are directly influenced by that work who reach audiences in the millions. So mapping mimetic influence is always dubious. You know, you want to be I think the furthest upstream and you want to seed an idea and then hopefully it bears some fruit down the way. But for me, the question of capitalist realism was kind of what we're talking about here. Is there an alternative? I have a few ideas about that. I think there are viable alternatives, but these are also like the great big questions of the 20th century of how to organize mass society and the efficient distribution of resources and what the role of markets are versus the role of the state. But my, my hope was that through propagating this meme, you could just simply introduce the question of what is the pervasive mindset. What are the baseline political assumptions of today? And I think those assumptions come from neoliberalism, that there is an inevitable drift towards austerity. Everything gets worse for, you know, we're all of the age group that basically every political change in every decade has been to our detriment. That's the experience of a lot of people who aren't part of the boomer generation. And so capitalist realism helps you to realize in some way that you are a fish in water. It's telling you that you're wet. It's telling you that you're in a specific period and that there are other ways to consider organizing society. And it just opens up that question and expands your political imaginaries. So I think there are, you know, competing solutions for, for what that problem is. But as many people have said in the past few years, maybe we're reaching We're looking at the end of it. We're glimpsing the cracks, you know, history is moving again. The Fukuyama thesis uh, is no longer the political common sense of our time. So yeah, maybe there is something beyond liberal democracy and we will discover that in the next few decades.
2: Huge fan of that project. I mostly study social media in like kind of quant political science arena with like a bunch of primarily lib establishment people. And so the sense that like what we're observing on social media is just an upswelling of public opinion is ridiculous. And yet that is still the intuition that everyone is working with. And so this project is, is great because it demonstrates the possibility that that's not what's actually causing the things that I see on the screen to come in, into into being. And I, I think that thinking about actually how this technology works and then how like other people are using it to their ends, and figuring out how to use it to our ends is a necessary move.
3: That's that's an important part of it too. Just in case I didn't, I didn't emphasize that before. That there's been a lot of really successful messaging on behalf of conservative and and really far right groups that have worked to you know use these mimetic exploits in terms of planting ideas and hashtags and and all of that kind of stuff, um, just kind of propagating ideas, conspiracies, etc. So the the question is like. Can those tools be used for progressives and for the left? And this is maybe a field test of how that works. And, you know, hopefully it provides, in the essay, I literally describe some like just technical things of like how you can make your images look as if they've been passed around. And, you know, it's, it's nothing too insightful. I think people who make memes to any degree of success will be familiar with a lot of these tools. But it's trying to make that tool set open source so that you can arm everybody equally rather than just leaving it to the worst actors and the early adopters and people who have like politics very different from mine.
0: Yeah, Judge, and what, what surprised you most about what you learned from your work on the project?
3: What surprised me, well, the response to the project has been really interesting because people really seem to be upset about it, but they broadly agree and love the book. It's a really popular book, and I think it's it's liked by people on both the right and the left, which is what made it an appealing, effective meme. But people are, I think, upset about it because they don't like the idea that the political ideas they came to could have been influenced by some unseen source. They don't like the idea that they could have been instrumentalized in someone else's project because it interrupts their perceived sense of autonomy and agency in this space. But, you know, that is unfortunately not the case. We're not in a horizontal landscape of, you know, rational individuals parsing information. We are in a heavily propagandized landscape that is subject to the inputs of all types of radical groups that are slowly filtered and, and rippling out. There hasn't actually been a serious rebuttal to it. I think the impact of the memes is kind of beyond dispute because there's, you know, just hundreds and hundreds of memes that are time-stamped, and you scroll back in the Discord. But yeah, there is a, a sense that I think on behalf of meme posters, the idea that they may not have the full extent of agency that they feel that they do. I'm certainly sympathetic to that. I guess the kind of research I do is is quite unconventional and an art is the field that does not abide by any other professional discipline you know which is both its advantage but also its drawback and so people ask me about the quantitative reach on these things and and whatever but that is i think impossible to map and also beyond the scope of the project it's supposed to be proof of concept that you can incrementally move people's ideas over time and to that degree i think it was successful as a targeted intervention but we may be watching the, the fruits of this project continue to play out because these things, they find a new life in the Internet all the time.
1: Super interesting. Josh, what questions along these lines are you continuing to explore through Do Not Research and other projects of yours?
3: Yeah, I guess in terms of how I occupy my time now, there's a, a very vibrant, thriving community that collected in the Discord. So capitalist realism and making those memes was probably our first really successful project. But in the beginning, I uploaded my syllabus to Patreon. There's a Discord, and so a community collected in there. They started to read the the work. They were mostly young artists. I mean, there's a, there's a real age range of people who are in 19 to like, I'm 35, there's people who are my age, people in BFA programs, MFA programs, people who drive for Uber or work for Amazon and have no formal education in the arts, but are just interested in creative projects online. And so in the last year, probably if I have my timeline right, we've published 143 posts of essays and artworks and internet culture research and things like that. We have 110 contributors to the blog we are on Monday going to launch the 405 page book (laughs) at the new museum. We mounted a museum scale exhibition in Holyoke, Massachusetts last month that was 46 works by 41 artists. It's just been this tremendously explosively productive community. And so my, my work has kind of moved from having a stream of content to also managing an arts organization. And I think the way that i understand it now is that uh, a lot of the platform environment has been inhospitable to this stuff like i've just been shadow banned for years which is tremendously expensive and constantly threatening the business in terms of like tos and and stuff like that i think what do not research will become is a new institutional structure that will uh, probably be the only record of these mimetic communities in like Literally the next two years, a lot of these things just get washed away and uh, eroded over time on the internet. And I'm, I'm hopeful that it's something like a creative think tank for wielding, you know, positive mimetic influence and shaping internet culture to better degrees. You know, these are very volatile, sensitive subjects. That's literally aesthetic content and we're talking about the circulation of images. So I think that's a, a ripe place for artists to be involved and to shape the discourse around it. Yeah, it's it's a new formation. A lot of these tools didn't exist before, like crowdfunding in the way that in terms of Patreon and things like that didn't exist a few years ago. And, and Discord is relatively new as well. So we're kind of making the ground that we walk on. But I think that would be the long-term goal is a, a new type of institution collecting aesthetic expertise on these important aesthetic topics.
1: So shifting gears a little bit, you both study political self-expression in different ways. Some of this will be a bit obvious, but how do millennials and Gen Z tend to express themselves politically? And how different is this from how the boomers tend to express themselves politically?
2: A big a big topic for me has been simply capacity. And so right, I think that it's insane that the internet happened when the boomers were fifty. Right. And that is a terrifying thing. Like from having a pretty stable media technology environment to one of the craziest, most dynamic periods in the history of information technology in your full adult life. It's just a wild experience. And like we see this from, I think of, of like the fake news phenomenon as, as usually described as informational fraud, that there are, there are, capacities to vet the information were not well developed and we never gave them the resources to develop those intuitions and, and they're kind of alone in their networks of other low digital literacy people. And then when it comes to how they communicate, if you post things on Facebook and you see what kind of uh, feedback you get, right? And so I think that there is an emergent boomer style, which is derived from a kind of bizarre combination of their previous media experiences. And then this hyper quantified feedback space on Facebook in particular, which is producing, you know, obviously crazy looking means and modes of expression, but they're just embedded in these networks and there's no other way they have learned to communicate and likely they, they won't.
0: Actually, I, I sort of want to like maybe turn that question on its head a little bit. If, if we take technology out of the equation and maybe just even look at political expression as just an abstract, like let's even say if we're comparing the boomers and political expression from when they were young to now, again, separate from the internet, like how would you guys say that fundamentally differs from millennials and Gen Z? C- or can that not be cleaved from the role of technology in the internet?
3: Well, I think there's two things that map onto each other here where you see the long tail nicheification of internet culture and a fragmentation of the political consensus that liberal democracy is, is the best way to organize society so in my work in the last few years i've tried to map the real edges of the political spectrum and and find all these fringe niche ideologies like monarcho syndicalism is one of my favorites or anarcho primitivist caliphateism. there's the kind of too many of these like combinatory we call them ideologies like ideology and it's something that's kind of made up as a a bit of identity play and role play and then they kind of jam together niche weird counterintuitive ideas like anarcho juche and cap transhumanism and whatever etc a million different hyphens on it but i i think that Differs from the millennial experience of social media, where we kind of came into it as these creative entrepreneurs and did not realize that we were, in effect, the early adopters of this system, mostly this Web2 system I'm thinking of early adopters of social media and we based you know our early careers around cultivating a creative brand and a taste level and things like that and now a lot of the work that people have done in the past 10 years certainly in my circle is is based off of the visibility that they accumulated and having you know a long track record in this space that is not the experience for Gen Z kids. When I had just graduated, there's Pace Gallery, which is like a blue chip, but you know, not billion dollar business. It's the as high as you can get in the uh, hierarchy of the art world. There was a period where they had less followers than a few BFA students at the School of the Art Institute in Chicago. So it was a very level playing field at the beginning. And now if you're a Gen Z kid, you are going up against multi- million follower hegemonic structures in the art world that have uh, kind of already colonized and and built partitions around social media so those early opportunities are not there as a result what you see uh, among these gen Z kids just you just watch the emergent behavior is that they are much more interested in identity play if they get too many followers on their account they will sometimes delete it and start over they're constantly switching accounts as a millennial you would Accumulate all of your followers under one very clear, easily transmittable brand name, but instead we're watching a behavior among Gen Z where they're, they're kind of evading all of these things. And one has to, I think, bring the analysis to it that it's because the economic rewards just literally don't exist on social media because it's already so stratified. Um, that then folds into the weird long-tail nicheification stuff, where people are trying on and off political identities, and they're cycling through them very quickly, and sometimes they latch onto something that seems a little fringe, or maybe they wouldn't have tried, or is, you know, out of the mainstream, and then they stick with it. So that has resulted in a vast, vast expansion of the Overton window in these media ecosystems, and this moves between being like an Internet. Identity meme slash joke to a few years down the line a pretty serious political movement There's maybe an analogy here, which is just you know some of these things are the result of like bad design in our Communication networks where there's all these predatory scams for boomers and like god forbid they click an email and like someone you know steals their life savings and this this kind of thing happens all the time I mean, on the other hand, you find young people who are very vulnerable to disinformation. They're smarter in terms of scams. Uh, I mean, they also have no money, but (laughs) they don't get robbed on the Internet as frequently. But they do fall prey to bad ideas. and, And maybe that's just across the spectrum at this point. And maybe we should think of some serious redesign if we want to fix the problem that maybe sending an email should cost you money. You know, maybe, maybe there's like kind of common sense spam prevention things that would certainly cut down on a lot of those.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely right. That's the optimistic case is that like the internet that the early California ideology folks had in mind, it was one of free play and switching identities and all that. And I I do think it is great for finding new possibilities. It does seem though that this will cause some people to have very bad ideologies, that basically seems like a necessary cost of this freedom and this play, and that the focus as a result of the past decade, especially six, seven years on the actual thing that the establishment needs to do is prevent there being any bad thought on the internet has really structured policy discussions and platform design and all of these things and has created a kind of alliance between the platforms and the Democratic Party and the state. And I think that it is, in fact, a good thing that younger generations are embracing this, this spirit of the internet and pseudonymity and, and switching things around and, and playing with things, even if some of the things that are generated are not good.
0: That's it for the free version of this episode. Up ahead, we get into political identity play online, bridging the gap between political behavior and actual political engagement, and just where Gen X fits in with all this. You can get all that, plus culture recs, essays, and more, by subscribing to us for the price of a pint of beer over at our Substack. And if you like what you're hearing, give us a share to help support independent journalism. that's it for our show. Today's episode was produced and edited by Emily Friedlander and me, Andrea Dominic. Our theme music is composed by Mark Donica. To dig deeper into both Kevin and Josh's work, we highly recommend that you do, head to our Substack. We've got lots of links. That's theculturejournalist.substack.com. If you like what you're hearing, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or share us with friends or on your socials to help support independent journalism. (laughs)
2: Fuck these boomers, fuck these yuppies, and fuck everybody now that I think of it.